And so what do you do if you're a young person, about 16 or 17, and uh, you have to make a decision as to what you will do. And a number of young men during this time came to the age where Christ was calling them. Samuel Kaufman's son, John, grew up with all this war around him. He saw his, the way his father was, uh, had to flee the community for a while. He saw his neighbors in hiding. And he had a crisis of conscience for himself because Jesus was calling him. And as a 16-year-old young man, he went out of the apple orchard one night. He was always a sensitive young man, and when his mother talked about the sufferings of Christ as a young man, he would weep. But the time came when he went out into the orchard and there, with himself and God, wrestled and gave his life to Christ and became a believer. And then he had to make the decision, what church will I join? Because he saw all these churches around him, and he chose to join his father's church. He was baptized in the creek at Muddy Creek, right near Bank Church, in, right during this time of the Civil War. He made that choice. There were others who had crises of conscience. Philip Parrott, yes, Parrott, just like, sounds like the bird, uh, was uh, from a home where the father was Presbyterian and the mother was Mennonite. Philip Parrott went into the army voluntarily, came home, was drafted, and then deserted. A crisis of conscience, because when he came back, from the second time from the army, he came to the Mennonite church and said, I want to be baptized. And he made the choice not to join his father's church, which was not committed to non-resistant, but chose to join his mother's church, which meant immediately he had to go into hiding and leave. And he went up the Shenandoah, I guess you say down the Shenandoah Valley, uh, and up into Chambersburg, and lived among the Mennonite people there. Kind of a, an oddball, you might say, because he couldn't speak German. And they all spoke German, and they, this, he was a, came up from Virginia. The local people uh, nicknamed him Rebel. Uh, he worked for a man by the name of Lesher, and so they called him Lesher's Rebel. And, but he lived in the community as somewhat of a stranger, but eventually married and was ordained in the Mennonite church as a minister, the first one in the uh, Cumberland Valley who did not preach German. And some people thought the church is drifting, <laughs> that we have someone who is had to preach that cannot preach in German. But God blessed his ministry. God blessed his ministry, and in my circle of friends, I have some who are descendants of Philip Parrott. 
uh, uh, part of the Mennonite church today, but he made his decision to, to identify with the non-resistant people in the time of war. But what about the home folks? Those who stayed home suffered many hardships. The book of Peter talks about all the sufferings that Christians go through. And that's more a suffering because of standing up for Christ, and that was part of it. But also, when there are times of suffering in a community, God's people often have to suffer along with it. Think back of Israel. Not everyone was in idolatry, but when the Israel was carried into captivity, the godly were carried along with those who were idolatrous. And so when war came to the Shenandoah Valley, people suffered not always because of their religious faith, but also because of the horrors of war. The song we just sang, The Woe and Waste of Warfare. The Shenandoah Valley was the breadbasket of the Confederacy. Augusta and Rockingham County were farming areas, wheat-growing areas, and it was a contested area because troops wanted to, from the south wanted to get to Washington, so came through the Shenandoah Valley. Troops from the north wanted to get to Richmond and came through the Shenandoah Valley, and there was a constant fighting of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, battles, battles, battles. And as the young men got older and fled north, the weight of the farm and family fell on the wives and the young boys. Yes, warfare was wiping out young men, middle-aged men, but disease was sweeping through the valley and children were dying of diphtheria, it was a, a time of, of death and dying. Also, many men were deserting the Confederacy and were going into the mountains. They were called bushwhackers because they would come out and steal things and go back into the mountains. They would come out and make little raids against the army, that the uh, Union Army, and then disappear back into the mountains. And these bushwhackers and lived off the land and the soldiers who came through, many of them lived off the land. Some of the soldiers that came through were very courteous. Some of them were very demanding. They would enter homes and demand food. They would search for money, and people began burying their valuables. Families would do things like take their money and bury it on the path. Uh, into their house, and so soldiers would be walking back and forth over their money and didn't know it was there. People began hiding food so that they would have enough for themselves. Mothers began baking biscuits and giving them to their children in the morning to put in their pocket so that they would have something to eat during the day because they never knew when soldiers would come and help themselves at home. The Confederacy demanded 10% of all the farm produce as a tax. And when they would come to Brethren and Mennonite farms, when they saw who they were, they would often take more than the 10%. Some of the people sold their things to the poor rather than have the Confederates come and take it. Relief food was sent to needy families 
of soldiers living in the Brock's Gap in the West Virginia areas. And after the destruction of the Shenandoah Valley, many of those people reciprocated in kind, bringing food out to share with the people of the valley. By now, church congregations consisted of women, boys, and old men. Anybody who was of military age was in hiding or gone. The draft age for the Confederacy was raised to 50 or 60. So last night I had everyone from the uh, first group uh, to stand today. All those between 18 and 60 stand, if you would. All you men between 18 and 60 stand. Yeah. Yeah. This would have been the group, and I, I, if we had time I would say you all leave, but I won't do that. You, <laughs> you might be glad for a breath of fresh air. But the point is, um, you may sit down, but... Yeah, the, the bulk of the congregation was gone. And church services, that some of them wrote and said, were mostly women sitting there weeping because of their women sitting and weeping because of all that was going on. Things looked dark. But God in his providence, uh, the exemption policy was retained. Even though the Confederacy debated whether to take away the exemption for Mennonites and Brethren and Quakers. Uh, throughout the war, that exemption policy was retained. Sometimes they did not have church because at the Weaver's Church, soldiers moved in and used it as a camp. Some of them slept with their boots on and left scars on the benches and on the pulpit desk. The pulpit desk in those days was a long stuck out both sides, and it was long enough that soldiers could sleep on the pulpit desk, and they left scars on the desk where their spurs of their boots had dug into it. Carvings on the benches remained long after the war was over. <clears throat> there was an issue that divided some of the church leaders, and that was, who was Caesar? Was Caesar... The Union, because the South was in rebellion against the nation. Several of the church leaders felt that the war was rebellion. But in Augusta County, there was a small group of the Mennonite community there that when the call came to pray, when the president said, let's pray for our country, that was Jeff Davis, the Mennonites of Augusta County had a prayer meeting uh, in response to their president's call for prayer. The church was somewhat divided because the Rockingham County uh, Mennonites refused to have a day of prayer. There were a few people that did join the peace churches to escape military service. I'm not sure quite how they did it because you had to be a member before to get the exemption, but there were some who apparently did join the Mennonite church and to uh, try to get some exemptions. And uh, that raised some questions in the church whether it was right to take people in just so that they could escape the war. I mentioned it too, the Underground Railroad that developed, and women were very active in hiding people in their homes. 
One lady had in her bedroom had a trap door and a rug over top of it. And for many months, she hid people in underneath her bedroom floor. It was also illegal to carry mail back and forth between deserters and those who were fled north. And there were women who were active in carrying mail back between families and those who of those who had fled north and those who had stayed, uh, families who stayed in the community. Horses were in high demand. Basically, the horses would have been the pickup trucks of that day, and the government needed the horses. And many Mennonite farmers had their horses taken away. Also, they had their horses pressed into service for hauling. Boys were forced to haul straw to Harrisonburg as bedding for wounded soldiers. Men hid their horses and cattle in the mountains. Mole Hill, which was a local extinct volcano in the area, was a common place for Mennonites and brethren to take their horses and cows to the top of the mountain and hide them there. Incidentally, the Union soldiers feared to go up there because they were afraid there were bushwhackers up on Mole Hill. Little did they know that it was full of Mennonites and brethren who would not have shot back at them. While Mennonites fed those who came to their homes because their understanding that they are to feed their enemies or to feed those who ask of them, that was one of the issues when they were in prison in Richmond that were uh, specifically came up. Uh, would you feed the enemy? In fact, the Secretary of War asked him that question, would you feed the enemy? And said, I won't make you answer that. I will answer it for you. Yes, you would, because your Bible tells you to do it. But soldiers would appear. The family would be sitting down to a meal, and suddenly soldiers would appear and the food would be gone before the children had a chance to eat. People took um, their grain and put it in their feather ticks and slept on it to hide. But soldiers came into the homes and wrecked havoc, tearing up quilts, tearing up pillows, looking for money, looking for valuables, looking for anything they could, looking for food. Freshly baked bread was especially attracted to the soldiers who came. One lady was baking pies, and soldiers came, and so she took her baby out of the cradle and put the pies in the bottom of the cradle, put the mattress down, laid the baby in. Another woman put her freshly baked bread in the wood box and sat down on the box and began knitting as the soldiers looked. If her house smelled like our house does when my wife bakes bread, they were sure there was bread there, but they couldn't find it. But it was a time of hunger. What do you do? Do you stay or do you go? In the Bank Church Cemetery, there's a little grave. Johnny Brunk. His father was in hiding. His father hid in attics. His father hid under that rug in the house of the lady I told you about, down in the basement or under the bedroom floor of that house. 
He hid, he hid, he hid. And while he was hiding, his little son Johnny became sick and died. And his wife Susanna stood at the grave, alone, perhaps with family, but her husband could not stand with her at her son's grave because he was in hiding. And so Henry Brunk came to the graveside service and stood in the back of the crowd and watched as his son was buried. Eventually, Henry thought that it was time for him to head north, and he headed to Maryland and sent word to his wife, or gave word to his wife, I want you to follow me when you can. Susanna waited and waited and waited and did not have word from her husband, so finally she decided, I will go north. She had another child by then. She and her child and her sister-in-law got into an open buckboard with a horse and headed down the Shenandoah Valley toward Maryland, trying to keep between the two armies when she could. Spunky woman. When soldiers came and tried to take away her horse, she said, I won't give it to you. I'm not sure how that fits in with non-resistance, but we'll leave that. But just about that time, uh, the soldiers heard that there's, there's Yankees coming, and so the soldiers fled, and she hitched up her horse and kept on going down the valley. When she got to Harper's Ferry, the bridge was burning, and the only way for her to get across the river was to go through the Potomac River. A local miller told her where some people had crossed through the river, and she plunged into the river with her horse and buckboard and made her way across the river. <clears throat> um, a courageous woman. But where was her husband? She had no way of knowing. There was no word back and forth. She eventually got to Hagerstown, Maryland. And as she was going up the street of Hagerstown, she looked up into a cobbler shop, and there sat her husband working on leather work. And there was a glorious reuniting of that family. They eventually moved further west, Illinois and Kansas, where she had, this is not civil war, but she had a, a, a hard life. Uh, most of her children died. One survived, George Brunk I, who became a leader in the Mennonite church. But his mother was that brave woman who fought her way down through the valley, through the soldiers, trying to get to Pennsylvania to find her husband. In 1864, General Grant decided that the Shenandoah Valley needed to be cleared out of anything that the Confederacy could use. Anything that would support the army was to be destroyed. The famous quote is, Grant said, it's to be so cleaned out that if a crow flew across the valley, he would have to take his lunch along. Philip Sheridan was put in charge of that project. It was one of the most desperate acts of war ever targeted against civilians in the United States. In late September, the Union Army arrived with thousands of soldiers, and they began 
systematic destruction of four counties. An area maybe 25 miles wide, 50 miles long from Stanton to up around Woodstock, Strasbourg. Basically, columns of soldiers headed out, burning mills, barns, factories, standing crops. Animals were to be driven off, or if they could not be driven, such as pigs and sheep, uh, were to be killed. And simply, as the soldiers moved through the valleys, the flame spread from mountain to mountain. And then in some strange weather inversion, the smoke went up and then leveled out over the whole valley. <clears throat> One of these men who were in charge of the burning was a man by the name of George Custer. General George Custer is more famous for his um, Indian battles in the West and eventually losing his life at the Battle of Little Bighorn. But he was one of those who basically said, let the smoke roll. His background, incidentally, was of a non-resistant family, or at least his forefathers were. He took the back road where many of the Mennonites and brethren lived, uh, beginning his burning at uh, Potter John Heatwell's farm. Resentment followed for him, and when eventually the people of the Shenandoah Valley learned of his death in the Dakotas, um, they were not all that sorrowful. So how do you react? The Bible talks about joyfully uh, giving up your goods. Now I'll go back to Samuel Kaufman. A story that comes from John L. Heatwell's book, The Burning, a whole book, yes, on a 13-day experience in the Shenandoah Valley. I'd like to read a short passage. When the Federals came to Harrisonburg on September 25, details had been sent out to gather forage and livestock. Companies were directed to visit the farms to the west along the Raleigh Springs Turnpike, as far as the village of Dale Enterprise, which was seated on a hill overlooking the Kaufman farm. The bishop and his wife were sitting on the porch watching their younger children at play on the lawn, and their eldest son, John, age 17, he was the young man who had just made the decision to follow Christ, uh, was, uh, reading a, uh, was under a tree reading a book, and his younger brother, was, no, his younger brother was under a tree reading a book when suddenly a detachment of cavalry turned into their home. Mrs. Kaufman rounded up the smallest children and took them inside. The bishop and his son John and Jacob walked to the yard gate. The soldiers bypassed the yard and rode directly to the barn and pasture field beyond the house. Soon there was heard the sharp crack of revolver and carbine as the pigs were killed in the farmyard. The Kaufman saw a young heifer topple over in the pasture. John pleaded with his father to do something to stop the slaughter as he watched the sheep being gunned down. But his father shook his head and 
said something to the effect that the soldiers obviously had come on a mission and the best the family could do was pray for a little mercy. Jacob observed that if the killing continued, the family would have nothing left. His father responded gravely that that was his concern too. As the cavalrymen came back toward the house, leading Judy and Prince, the family's best team of horses, the bishop remarked quietly, at least they didn't shoot them. John, looking beyond, groaned audibly when he saw the soldiers also leading away Nell, their best saddle horse. As the soldiers passed the yard gate, the bishop called out to them as he would to a neighbor, wishing the officer in charge a good day and remarking to the lieutenant that they had a good team of horses in their charge. The men stopped, and while stroking Judy's neck, the lieutenant observed that the horses had obviously been well cared for. The bishop admonished the young man to just see that they still are, and then asked him what the raid was all about. The officer replied that they had orders not to leave anything behind that could be of use to their enemies. And that was all he knew about it, or anything that might feed innocent women and children, the bishop asked. The officer could think of no suitable reply, so he rode on, leading Judy while the other men followed, taking Nell and leading Prince. When the soldiers had gone, the bishop and his son walked back to the barn, pens and pastures to survey the damage. Dead animals lay everywhere, yet a few pigs and sheep had been able to escape along with a milk cow and a few chickens. Jacob remarked that the soldiers must have run out of bullets or they would have killed the few that survived. What animals were left were taken to the safety of nearby Mole Hill. The bishop felt that it was his duty as a, to his church members to stay, but he discussed with his wife the possibility that she and the children would go north with other refugee families. She would not even consider it. They would be all right, she told her husband, and as far as food to see them through the winter, God will take care of us. <clears throat> the story of a leader and his response when they came to destroy his place. In the midst of this horrendous burning, one of Sheridan's aides was killed, a young man by the name of Miggs. And in revenge, Sheridan said everything within five miles of where he was killed is to be burned. Houses, barns, mills, everything. Everything burned. And so that burning began. A burning within the burning. And so everyone suffered. Pro-Union, pro-Confederate, Mennonite, brethren, whatever you were, during that time, many, many people suffered. It was a chance then for the people to work together to help. But many, it was time for them to give up. And one of the questions is, when do you flee? When do you stay? Sheridan had taken the horses and wagons, and he sent word that anybody that wanted to could join a refugee train 
that he would organize and take them north. And out of a church community of about uh, 400 families, 350, 400 families, about 100 Mennonite families decided to give up and go north. And they gathered, each with a wagon, each with a horse provided by the Union Army, a line that stretched about 16 miles long along the Valley Pike. That wasn't just refugee families. That was all the loot that the Union Army had stolen and collected, all the cattle, and this long 16-mile line of refugees and loot began to move north. One of the things that I mentioned last night was the groups uh, of young men singing in the army camps. And one of the things that impressed the soldiers as these refugees moved north was in the evening gathering together and singing. A testimony to the grace of God even in the midst of terrible loss. Michael Shank, the man I mentioned last night that was loaded up in the wagon and taken away because he refused to go into the army, felt like it was time to load up a wagon and leave. His wife and his youngest four children, uh, wife and the youngest, rode in the wagon while the other children walked. Mile after mile, walking because the wagon was full including little nine-year-old Katie, Katie Shank, who at the age of about nine still weighed 36 pounds. She had been a preemie baby, a pound and a half at birth, and survived. A grain of corn could have been laid on her hand and covered her palm. They could put her into a quart jar when she was born. But she, a little feisty thing, claimed that she walked the whole way to Pennsylvania. That's the story she told her 15 children. <laughs> but it was a sad time. And then the Brotherhood in Pennsylvania, the Brotherhood in Maryland, reached out to these people and took them into their homes. And uh, were a it was a blessing uh, that people reached out and helped them. Then these people came back and had the problem the idea, the, the issue of rebuilding. 400 wagons of refugees, wagons of supplies, 16 miles long, hundreds of starving people facing a hard winter, but they survived by the grace of God. And while a fourth of them left, most of them came back, came back to rebuild, came back to start over again, but came back with their conscience uh, seared with suffering. And a number of years later, when the Mennonite people in Russia realized that their non-resistant beliefs were no longer being going to be restricted or being be respected by the Mennonite, uh, by the Russian government, the conservative Mennonites the Russian Mennonites, began coming to the United States. And a letter in the church paper, written by no less than Michael Shank, who had lost everything during the Civil War, his whole house, he was in the five-mile zone, everything was burned. 
Soldiers tore down his fences to make campfires. He wrote in the Gospel Herald, we know what it's like to suffer, so let's reach out to these refugees that are coming, to our, our fellow brothers and sisters who are coming now. Yes, the suffering was a long time ago. But we have this legacy of our people suffering here in Virginia. And our world is full of suffering refugees today. And one of the questions that we face is, what will we do as God's people in reaching out to the suffering people of our world in a war that's nothing to do with us, really? in wars that have disrupted people that are very unlike us. But will we reach out to those around us? Yes, there's one more uh, story that uh, needs to be told. Because at the beginning of the beginning of that war, we had the diary of John Klein, who said, the war will bring suffering and bloodshed, and I hope our people will not give up. John Klein, as a leader, was under suspicion by the local people because as a follower of Christ, he did not recognize the line between the North and the South. If he went to go to Pennsylvania to preach to his fellow Christians, he went. He had a pass from the Confederate government, but he went. If he, and then he came back. He was also a doctor, kind of an herb doctor, but a doctor nonetheless. And he would treat people no matter what their beliefs or backgrounds. He had a very difficult life because as an elder in the Brethren Church, as a preacher, he counseled his young men uh, to not to go into the military. He had scattered congregations to preach through back in the mountains. He and his faithful horse, Nell, traveled thousands and thousands and thousands of miles through the years. And in the midst of that, he had a very personal suffering because, because of the loss of a child, his wife had dementia, and she had to be cared for constantly. And so he did not have a supportive wife at home. And so he had the care of his wife, he had the care of the churches, he had the care of being a leader in a difficult time. several young men in the community decided that they were going to get rid of John Klein. At least one of them was the grandson of a Mennonite who had not, the young man had not chosen to follow the path of his forefathers. And they one day found out where John Klein was traveling and ambushed him, killing him. And this leader who had done so much to lead the Mennonite and Brethren community in the Shenandoah Valley was shot in cold blood. These men were never brought to any kind of prosecution because of the fact that no one would speak up and the non-resistant Christians would not press charges. Which brings to one thing yet. Those 70 men who were captured in West Virginia on their way to flee, at the end of the war, it was realized that those Confederate scouts who had captured them it was illegal because they were on parole and had promised that they would not do anything against <clears throat> the Union cause. And so some of the people, I don't know who it was, but began a lawsuit against 
those men who had captured the 70. They came over to the Shenandoah Valley to get men who would sign that this is what happened, we want to prosecute these men, and nobody would sign. None of the Mennonite or Brethren men would press charges against those men who had captured them and led them through that time of uh, six weeks in prison in Richmond. Non-resistance is not just in time of warfare. Non-resistance is a way of life. And even though the Mennonites of that era were, are often considered in some kind of a dark ages or something, they, they really didn't have a lot of, quote, spirituality, yet somehow the message of Christ came through and their young people accepted that message and they sought to be consistent within the light they had. May God help us to be faithful. In this afternoon session, I would like to look at some lessons that we can learn from this. And I'm open to ideas that you have heard or thought of. So, uh, as I said last night, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit and that'll help keep people who eat too much asleep from going to sleep, rather. <laughs> okay. God bless you. I'll turn it back over to the moderator.